does Ohio Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine really have the audacity to cite someone else for a conflict of interest and suggest they break away? That's the first story we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, and Layla is up first. What intriguing argument have the Republicans on the Ohio Supreme Court offered for not participating in a trusted voter guide? And is Pat DeWine actually accusing someone of having a conflict of interest that would disqualify them from participating in something? Take it away, Layla. Well, you know, Pat DeWine has a really finely tuned barometer for <laughs> ethics, you know, so so this is the, <laughs> this is a judicial election education project called Judicial Votes Count. The Ohio Supreme Court's website is hosting the information online and the site features this flow chart of the hierarchy of courts in Ohio. It's got the dates of the primary and general elections, some videos explaining municipal and common pleas, juvenile appeals in the Supreme Court. It's your basics. It's a public service. And and the judges who are on the ballot can answer questionnaires with biographical info, and, and it gets populated on the website after the judges submit online forms. But in this May 4th memo to the other members of the court, Republican justices Sharon Kennedy, who's running for Ohio Chief Justice, and Pat DeWine and Patrick Fisher, who are seeking re-election, questioned whether participating in this project violates the ethical obligations of the court to be independent. (laughs) It's a little late to be raising any questions about their ethical obligation to be independent. I mean, so they, they questioned how public resources were being used in this education effort. They, they criticized the project's partnership with the Ohio League of Women Voters. Of course, you know, the League of Women Voters, they're one of the plaintiffs in the redistricting case that's before the court. The justices said seemingly neutral questions could be interpreted as favoring certain candidates, like a question about previous judicial experience, like that could appear as if the court doesn't like candidates who would be new to the bench. And they don't think the court should be the proper entity to be providing voting information to voters, considering how many of them are on the ballot. You know, of course, the elephant in the room here is that it's it's kind of ironic for Pat DeWine to be raising issues of propriety and ethics, considering his refusal to recuse himself from his dad's gerrymandering case before he then went ahead and ruled in favor of the gerrymandered maps that his dad helped create. So... <laughs> And, you know, Sharon Kennedy has her own similar conflict of interest in the past. So, you know, she spoke at that Greater Cleveland or the Greater Toledo Right to Life event in 2017 when the city's surgical abortion clinic had a case before the court. And she didn't recuse herself from the case and then sided against the clinic, which stopped surgical abortions for two months. So so it's it's just, you know, just just astounding. Well, that this that this of all things this this really minor thing this educational vote this voter educational project is what they're going to throw the, the throw the flag on <laughs> well, the, the first part of their argument that that this somehow being on the supreme court site endorses a candidate that that's kind of preposterous it's just an informational site Maureen O'Connor has been big about trying to educate voters so it would make sense to have that on their site i don't see that But they do have, I think, a legitimate argument that because the League of Women Voters is involved in this thing and the League of Women Voters is before the Supreme Court, that is a conflict. 
they're right. They see right the conflict. The problem is, as you said, they don't see much more obvious conflicts. There is no way Pat DeWine should be ruling on his dad's gerrymandering case. We've talked about it and talked about it, and I cannot imagine that there isn't a complaint before the bar challenging him to, to seek his law license. I don't know if there was one filed on Sharon Kennedy. Clear conflicts of interest. Clearly not fit to serve on those cases. So it's you're right. The irony is rich that they're picking this, which is legitimate, while having the biggest conflicts we've well, ever heard of. To your point about the legitimacy of this, I mean, the, the, the Supreme, the Ohio Supreme Court's public information director who supervises the court's office of civic education says, seems to be saying that the justices are kind of misunderstanding a few things about how this project works. The, the workers in the office of civic education who manage the website don't directly work on court cases like the redistricting case and the League of Women Voters, you know, workers who part who, you know, the worker who partners with the court, you know, also doesn't work on they don't work on any policy or court cases. The League is a is a founding member of judicial votes count, but doesn't formulate any of the questions that end up on the questionnaires. So it received the questionnaire. It receives the questionnaires from the Supreme Court and posts them to its own website. It doesn't you know, so there there are some pretty firm firewalls here in place. And that is the thing that that, you know, should be enough. I mean, that should be enough, right? Well, but we deal with conflict all the time. And, and and having the appearance of a conflict of interest doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It's just you seek to be pure. So the, the, the League of Women Voters is a key factor in this gerrymandering case that Pat DeWine won't recuse himself from. They probably shouldn't be on the Supreme Court website just because of the appearance. We deal with this kind of stuff all the time in our in our field, and we're pretty careful about the appearance of a conflict of interest. So I, I actually believe they're right here, that, that the League of Women Voters should not be participating in something that's on the Supreme Court website because people could argue that there's some favor or not that takes place, even though we know the League of Women Voters is not doing anything wrong here. Mm, okay. Good stuff. Touché. Good story. Interesting that the Republicans are standing up. Clearly, they don't want this because they don't want people noting their gigantic conflicts of interest. So they just want this to go away because they know they have a huge minus that will be used against them as they seek their offices in but November. But let me say one thing, though. Don't you think that by pointing out a petty conflict of interest, it draws even more attention to your giant conflict of interest? From us. <laughs> but I don't think, I mean, is anybody else in the state paying attention? Northeast Ohio is getting it. We have the story. We're talking about it in this podcast. But does does it play in rural Ohio where elections are decided? Does anybody in rural Ohio know about any of their conflicts of interest? They're in a news desert down there. And I so maybe maybe they'll take the hit here where nobody's going to vote for them anyway and and figure that uh, it makes it go away when people start to look. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a. It was one of the most interesting stories we've seen come out of the Supreme Court, and there's been a lot of interesting stories coming out of the Supreme Court. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. In the face of potential contempt citations from the Ohio Supreme Court, what are the Republican leaders who did everything they could to thwart their constitutional redistricting duties doing now to close the discussion for 2022? 
Lisa. They're do- they're doing more thwarting and foot dragging. That's what they're doing. Attorneys for Matt Huffman and Bob Cup are asking to delay the map making process until after the November election. And then after the election, they can go back to the drawing board for a sixth time to try and draw maps that are fair and constitutional. Um, they're anticipating rejection of the latest set of maps that were approved last week. That That's uh, map set number five that was passed last Thursday. But they're very similar to the third iteration of maps. So the reasoning for attorneys for Huffman and Cup, they said, well, they should allow voters to decide who returns to the redistricting commission because almost all of them are up for re-election on the commission. They also said it would reduce voter confusion by drawing new maps while elections have different lines. And they say that there's no time limit in the Constitution on redistricting. So, you know, why do it now? Let's wait till November. November. And, you know, obviously they have reasons to drag their feet. We just talked about one of them. I mean, the Supreme Court chief justice race between Jennifer Bruner and Sharon Kennedy could really change the uh, the tenor of the court come November. Yeah, this is so venal. I mean, they've done everything they can not to do their duties. We've talked about it since last fall. At every juncture, they've done the wrong thing. They haven't done what the voters demanded of them. They haven't done what the Supreme Court said. And what they did last week was unconscionable. They adopted maps that the Supreme Court had already told them were unconstitutional. They adopted them anyway in the face of the Supreme Court. Now, knowing the Supreme Court's going to say, what are you doing? That, that you know, you're. They, they could be cited with contempt. They're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you throw those out, which we expect, let let's just not deal with this now. Which is what they wanted all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wanted to get through the elections. Exactly. And uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRose, you know, a while back, he had said that an April 20th deadline was the last time they could, you know, draw maps to meet the August 2 election date. And they said, well, yeah, they, attorneys for LaRose said, well, yeah, they approved an illegal plan, but only as a stopgap to keep the election on track. Yeah. Frank LaRose holds himself out as the guardian of elections, but he has been complicit in every one of these moves. Secretary of State, supposed to be the guy that represents Ohio in doing the right thing. And at every juncture, he's done the wrong thing to maintain outsized Republican control of the state, which we know is going to be important as the whole abortion issue comes along. It just stinks to the high heavens. I can't wait to see what the Supreme Court does. It's today in Ohio. What does our chief political writer Seth Richardson say is the potential future for Josh Mandel, who lost his nearly 18-month campaign to be Ohio's next senator? Laura. Well, he could still run again. He's still pretty young at 44, and maybe his fourth try will be the lucky one. But if he's going to run again, he has to reinvent himself and and position himself as as a different kind of candidate also maybe not try for senator maybe try for something a little bit lower in the rungs of the political echelon but mandel was once viewed as this rising star in the party he was the state treasurer as you sure you remember now he's unsuccessfully run for senate three times he lost twice rejected by voters he dropped out once and uh, that started in 2012 when he lost to Sherrod Brown. And he hasn't made a lot of friends in this. It's not like he's just getting familiar with voters. He's he's very familiar to voters. He's kind of a bomb thrower. He started his campaign criticizing the governor, for one sake. And, and he's had lots of controversies ever since he's been in politics, starting with his time in, as treasurer. 
You know, I'm not quite buying the analysis, and I've heard from some readers who are saying the same thing. People hate Josh Mandel. I mean, he brings out a, a sneering scorn because people believe he doesn't stand for anything. He'll say or do anything to get elected. He doesn't stand for anything. This time around, his whole mantra was he's going to go to the southern part of the state and push Christianity, which mm-hmm. was a new one. But he got he came in third in his home county. I mean, he didn't. He not only didn't win his home county; he came in third place in his home county, where well, people. Well, to be fair, we don't have a lot of Republicans here. No, no, no. I'm talking about in the Republican race in well, his home true. county. He came in third. He could not get support from the people who know him best, and I think that dooms him in the future. He can run all he wants. People do not like Josh Mandel. I agree that people vehemently dislike him. He did come in second overall, though, and Mm -hmm. there's still people saying if J.D. Vance hadn't gotten Trump's endorsement that that Mandel would have won. And we've talked to numerous people. um, I don't think we've we've published this, but we've talked on the podcast about we know people who crossed over from Democrat to Republican for the primary just to vote against uh, Josh Mandel. That is how much he's disliked here. I love this quote from this Republican lobbyist named Matt Cox. He said, each time he ran, he became a worse version of what he was before in terms of just saying whatever it is he thought people wanted him to say to get elected. People get tired of that. And I I think you nailed that. Well, he he wanted to be Donald Trump, but he doesn't have any of, I mean, I hate to say it this way, the smarts of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is P.T. Barnum. He is great Mm -hmm. at fooling people into supporting him. He's convinced rural poor Americans that he's helping them when he's done nothing but harm them. But he's the master of that. Josh isn't smart enough to pull that off. So it comes across as hollow. Look, everybody saw the ads. They were horrible. They were awful. I would say a lot of them, um, you know, from J.D. Vance were awful. And I mean, none of the Republicans really seemed like they were you know, having positive political ads, but you're right. It was pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump, and that's what he hung his hat on, and I don't know what happens the next time around. But, I mean, I don't think he can yeah, run for I, senator I just again, don't that's see for it. sure. I mean, he, he plays the the family, you know, in his previous campaigns, he played the family man, and as soon as that campaign ended, he went off to a distant county and divorced his wife. And I, I just, I, he's a pretender. In every way possible, there is no real Josh Mandel, and that quote summed it up. So I don't see it. I think the, the idea that he has a political future is folly, but you never say never. Maybe he'll the, move somewhere else and try again. Like, he's like, okay, Ohio voters <laughs> have had enough of me. I'm going to move somewhere else. Yeah, Utah. He'll he'll go the Mormon route now because the Christianity work didn't work. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the pandemic moratorium on evictions over and done, is Cleveland seeing a big jump in eviction cases? Layla, this was a huge fear that when the moratorium was lifted, we'd see it. But the court did put in some guardrails. Yeah, you know, Zach Smith brought us this story. I'm so glad he did it. This has been on my mind. I'd, I'd been wondering what the data show, show us since this moratorium has ended. We had been expecting this giant tidal wave of evictions to hit eventually. But but Zach found that while evictions have returned to Cleveland at a, at a steady pace, they're actually not at the same rate as pre-pandemic. So the city's eviction moratorium lasted March 16th, 2020 to June 15th, 2020, uh, though the federal moratorium continued through August 2021. And then there was a two-month surge in eviction filings, and then the numbers kind of came back to earth. 
And Zach found some really interesting trends in the data. For example, evictions are not spread across the city evenly, and, and they're often concentrated in a small number of buildings owned by just a few management companies. From the beginning of the moratorium through March of 2021, 18.5% of all evictions came from just 100 buildings. And five buildings owned by four management companies have accounted for at least 50 evictions each, accounting for 321 eviction filings in total. And so I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, and, you know, but really what I w- want to know is, is why haven't we seen that eviction tsunami? It's, it's, uh, is it because of, I mean, I'm assuming in part it's because of all the rental assistance that we've, that's been made available. And, but, and, and also because, uh, you know, renters have probably moved on from bad landlord relationships and sort of self-evicted, so to speak. And, and also, you know, the city of Cleveland and Legal Aid Society have this very successful right to counsel program that provides legal representation for families in poverty that face eviction. And but is it those things together that that have made it so that we're not seeing that spike, that consistent spike in evictions? Or is there something more to this trend? Um, I, 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 I'm not sure. I think the court insisting that there be proof by the landlords that the tenants had been informed of the insistence uh, or of the assistance availability probably has been a factor that you can't go in mm-hmm. to evict somebody unless you can show that they're aware of the assistance that was made available to to help people get through it. Um, you know, if you go to people and say, hey, I'm going to evict you, but this is available to you, then, you know, you're less likely to evict. And actually, uh, we haven't talked about this yet because I haven't started discussing it, but the legislation, um, the pay-to-stay legislation that allows people to pay at the last minute to avoid eviction um, mm-hmm. is suddenly before city council, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was uh, th- that was just introduced last night. It was kind of, um, you know, on the table, a, I'm not sure, a year or about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, Carrie McCormick was the city councilman who... Um, had championed that a while back, and and now it's finally with Justin Bid, Mayor Bibbs, uh, um, um, you know, backing. It has finally come through for uh, City Council's approval, and I'm very excited about that. And so that should keep the tsunami at bay even longer. So it's good. It's a good. I mean, it's a bad news story that evictions have come back up, but it's a good news story that we haven't seen the huge number of people getting dumped on the street. Good story. It's on cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. What's at stake today is the trial begins involving how Lake and Trumbull County suffered during the opioid crisis. Lisa, we already have the verdict that the pharmacies are partly to blame for the damage they suffered. What happens now? That's correct. The jury back in November found CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart responsible for, you know, have a big role in the opioid crisis. So today, in federal judge Dan Polster's courts, hearings will begin to determine the monetary damages that will flow to Lake and Trumbull County. Uh, The attorneys for these two counties are expected to ask for $1 billion over, paid out over several years. And that's already in addition to the $18 million in settlements that Lake and Trumbull County got from Giant Eagle, Rite Aid, Johnson & Johnson, and others. So this money is supposed to pay for programs for prevention, treatment, job assistance, police training, and and mental health intervention. Um, 
This is the very first jury in all of the opioid suits nationwide to hear testimony about the pharmacy's role in the crisis. So the attorneys for the pharmacies are saying, well, they think that the settlement money should go only to those who were addicted buy pills from their drug stores, so not illicit drugs sold on the street. And they also said that the uh, estimate on the cost of programs to help opioid sufferers is way overblown. They feel like it's more like three, $35 million to $346 million, and they only want to fund those programs for one year. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit surprised they haven't settled this because the exposure is pretty big. They I, they thought they'd win the original case, and they didn't. Yes. They got creamed. So it just seems like the smart financial play would have been to settle. You'd think that, but $1 billion is a big figure. And so I guess they're going to try and hammer that down as far as they can. And, you know, we don't have any cost estimates for these programs and how much they would cost or whether they would even be effective. All right. Well, we'll be covering it every day on Cleveland.com and it'll be in the Plain Dealer. We'll be talking about it on Today in Ohio. Was the Foxconn Lordstown Motors deal, which was seen as a key to the future of the startup electric truck maker, a mirage? Laura, I've always thought this was never going to come. And where does it stand now? Yeah, I was thinking, I feel like this whole company may be a mirage, even though there's really big, you know, pictures of it on the side of the building and, you know, Trump endorsed this and, and Mike Pence and all of this stuff. But it has just always seemed too good to be true. And this deal has not been finalized between Lordstown and Foxconn. The key deadline is just over a week away. And the Lordstown Motors could have to pay $200 million back that Foxconn sent as a down payment. That's like, it doesn't have that money. So shares of this electric pickup manufacturer have dipped to an all-time low. We're talking about $1.55 a share when the Foxconn deal was announced, which is all Already after you knew the, the company was in trouble, it was trading at $7.98 a share. This is the same company that an investment firm has released a scathing report saying the company misled investors about how much demand there was for the vehicle and the production capabilities. So it's just never seemed like, you know, legitimate. No, it always seemed like it was a mirage that was created to, to help Donald Trump. And, you know, remember him being on the White House lawn with the truck and Rob Porter. Right, and that's probably the only truck they've made. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't seem like they ever had what was going. And, and let's face it, they're going up against Ford, which has got an electric F-150 and the, the, the established companies that are much more trustworthy than what could be this fly-by-night. If you were going to buy a truck, would you buy it from this company or would you go with a company you expect might be around? This could be the doom of that whole enterprise. Yeah, they still say they're going to make this endurance truck this year, as many as 500 vehicles, and then some won't be delivered till 2023. But remember that scathing report came out. People were saying, well, we didn't know that the they were counting us as actual orders. We just said we were interested <laughs> in it. So I, they said it's costing them more to make these trucks right now than they can possibly sell them for. So I, I will not be surprised when they're like, yeah, this is not happening. It's today in Ohio. And what will be a constant disappointment, I'm sure, to Dee and Jimmy Haslam, Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson is back in the headlines again for non-football news. Layla, what's it about? 
Well, Adam Faris reports that Watson will be deposed twice this week, then on several consecutive days in June, although it appears that a trial before the NFL season is really unlikely. There was apparently a hearing on Monday in a Houston courtroom regarding the new dates for Watson's deposition and the timing of a potential trial in any of the 22 lawsuits filed against Watson regarding those accusations of sexual misconduct. Attorneys on both sides agreed that Watson will be deposed in two cases Friday and two more each day between June 21st and 23rd after the Browns complete mini camp. But before training camp, which hasn't officially been scheduled, but usually starts in late July. And then the judge pointed out that Watson will still need to be deposed in seven more cases, and those depositions haven't been scheduled. She suggested attorneys conduct depositions on Saturdays or ask Watson to sit for three depositions per day instead of two. And they're still trying to figure out whether there'll be a trial in July or August before the NFL season begins. But if not, it'll probably happen next April after the season ends. You know, I don't know. It, it just sucks when your sexual misconduct deposition schedule gets in the way of oh football boy. practice. Am I right? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, I mean, this is not going to go away. I mean, and he can't settle because he has claimed he's completely innocent and a settlement would be seen as an admission of guilt. So this is just going to drag on and on and on. He, he's going to be in trials. There's going to be nonstop publicity that has nothing to do with him playing football, which was the risk they took when they brought him in. We still get emails pretty much every week from across the country from women saying, I was a Browns fan, never again. I can't believe they did this. And the, 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 the anger about this is not going away. I'll be curious to see if the announcers in the football games bring it up every week or if they try to stay away from it and just keep it about football because the people watching will be thinking about it. The announcers are going to stay away from this. Yeah. There's oh, yeah. zero chance they're going to bring this up. Yeah, they're, yeah. No, <laughs> they, nobody wants to come in. In, in the world of football, they want to they stay far away from, from this. Oh. But, you know, I, so gross. In this story, I, I got so angry when I read the line about, about how Watson's attorneys were seeking those records about how the women ever contracted a sexually transmitted disease or had an abortion. And I was glad to see that the judge had limited the scope of the records to, to mental health so that the, you know, his attorneys can just depose the women's therapists or psychiatrists and just kind of stick to those facts. I mean, that, that kind of dragging the, the, the women through the mud is so classic of these cases. And I'm glad that the judge, you know, stepped, you know, put, put, her, put her foot down on that. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, this so, I, I hate everything about this, this case and, yeah. and the fact that, the fact that the, the Browns took on this player. Well, there are a lot of people who feel the same way and we keep hearing from them. It's Today in Ohio. We had a case involving $24 million in fake loan applications for coronavirus relief funds in Northeast Ohio. What was involved and what's happening to the guys who were behind it? Lisa, I guess it's inevitable that when there's big bundles of money to squander, there'll be scam artists using it. We're also seeing cities do the same thing, which is why we have Stimulus Watch. What happened here? 
Two Florida men were sentenced to prison uh, by U.S. Judge Pamela Barker after pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Philip Augustine, a 53-year-old from Coral Springs, Florida, will serve six and a half years in prison. He'll have to pay $5.9 million in restitution and additional money from his own account. James Stote, 56, of Hollywood, Florida, he gets 10 years and he's got to pay $10.1 million in restitution. So they were part of a a 17-member fraud ring that included a father-son from uh, Cuyahoga County. They submitted 90 fake applications for CARES Act loan money equaling $24 million. Augustine owns a Florida talent agency that reps uh, professional football players. He got an $84,000 loan and he developed a template for his business contacts to use and then send him kickbacks. So the Dion and Abdul Azim Levy of Cleveland and Bedford, respectively, they applied for a $554 million loan with fake information. They were busted back in June of 2020 while meeting with FBI agents passing as bank investigators in that case. You always wonder, we hear about the cases where people get caught, but you always wonder how many people do this and don't get caught, because otherwise... There's got to be a profit motive. They have to think they can get away with it. Otherwise, they're going to jail for a long time, and it's inevitable. So you wonder if what percentage of these fraudulent cases the investigators actually get. And this wasn't a one-off. I mean, a lot of those CARES Act were just one-offs, you know, just uh, individual scamsters. But this guy says, hey, I figured out how to do it. I'll tell all my business contacts how to do it, too, if they give me a little (laughs) bit of money on the side. So, yeah. Amazing case, and they'll be spending some time now in orange jumpsuits. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We don't really have time for one more question. Sorry, Laura. We'll push it again till tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. We'll be back Wednesday with Courtney Astolfi in the chair. <laughs> <laughs>